Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. And now, without further ado, we're here for our dear Ben Marcus. Uh, he's the author of four books of fiction, Notable American Women, The Father Costume, The Age of Wire and String, and The Flame Alphabet. And he's the editor of the Anchor Book of New American Short Stories. His stories, essays, and reviews have appeared in Harper's, The New Yorker, The Paris Review, McSweeney's, The Believer, New York Times, Salon, and Time. He's the recipient of a Whiting Award and a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship in Fiction and three Pushcart Prizes. And he lives in New York City. And he's here now to talk about Notes from the Fog, um, which Charles Yu says, To read Ben Marcus is to discover a new language trapped inside of the old one, sentences that cut through every layer straight to the heart of the matter, writing that startles you into wakefulness. You know all these words but have never seen them used like this before. To read Ben Marcus is to be challenged and entertained and inspired all at once. Here he is. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming. It's nice to see all of you. This is my first reading ever. Um, I'm really honored to do it here. I will. I thought I would read a, a kind of a <clears throat> Reader's Digest version of the title story of this book, Notes from the Fog, and, and um, so I'll be leaving a lot out, and it might accidentally improve the story. Um, but then if it's bad, I will have that excuse that I left out most of the most of the good parts, and then I would love to take any questions that you might have. All right? So this is called Notes from the Fog. Can everybody hear? All right. My wife, Jin, once knocked gently on my head as if it were a door. Hello, she kept saying. Hello, who's in there? She and our therapist, Dr. Sherby, laughed a little about this, so I did too. What fun. Keep knocking on my head like that, like it's a door or an egg. I wasn't going to be the only one not laughing. That's human survival 101. Not that survival is such a prize. But still, you might as well control your exit. Put your own little spin on how you step away from the show once and for all. I laughed as Jin kept knocking on my head and I said, as if I might really be answering the door, just a minute, I'm coming, hold your horses, no need to break the house down. We all just looked at each other. Maybe I wasn't supposed to be in on the joke. Jin stopped knocking and tucked her hands in her lap. I'll be right there, I said, in the most distant voice I could manage as if I were many rooms away, underwater overseas, crawling toward them as best as I could. There was nothing wrong with us. We were sweet. We were great. Friends, if that's what you wanted to call them, said we were the perfect couple. To me, that meant we were alive. We hadn't died. We hadn't bled out in the streets. We didn't drag each other by the hair from room to room. We observed holidays and put food on the table and hadn't been pushed from a cliff yet. We couldn't fly. 
We couldn't live forever. We couldn't fight off disease when it came. But we lifted the kids into the air and let the wind shape them. Not really, not really. But it could feel that way. And who really knew how the kids had ended up so kind, so free of murder in their hearts? It wasn't because of us. Certainly not me, anyway. Those friends, all of them, went the way of the drain. They floated out of their homes and turned to smoke. They rotted in place. None of them lived long because nobody does. They wandered off into the sunless afterlife, sooner, later, eventually. You can look up their names and you won't learn much. They pack no bags. Their stuff was probably just thrown away. It was late April, the 11th year of my marriage, when I was fired from my job as a teacher at Foley Parochial. Mr. Rubens, the chief anxiety machine at the school, called me into his office. Given the hour, lunch, and his initial silence when I walked in, I knew it could not be good. When is it ever good when someone says they need to talk to you? We should all know better. We should run for the woods when our name is called. Um, I'm gonna kind of skip through the firing scene. It's 119 pages. Um, but now I don't know where I'm supposed to go. I thought I marked this up. Um, at Foley, I never struck a child. I hurt no one. I said nothing untoward or incorrect so far as I know. It was my policy to do my job to the letter, then return home. At home, I would rest up and restore myself to power, then rinse and repeat forever if need be, or that was the plan. I had charted it far into the abyss, how I'd survive my sweet term on the planet, gathering spoils and repelling misfortune, how I'd hit my marks and keep from breaching etiquette, hugging gin close to me all the while. Because without a religion, one must have a code. Without a code, it's like piloting a body with no bones through life, which some people do, God help them. Dragging a heap of skin from room to room, hoping people see you as a human being when you are only a spill. You've leaked from something larger that is gone now, not even a shadow, and you are all that remains. In the end, it is too exhausting to approximate a real person. You deflate. Where your body was, there is barely a face. Your skin gets kicked from room to room. Some child wears it, calls it his shirt. Mr. Rubin sat me down, offered tea. He spoke of the world. He called it a place for feelings, for fun. He called it a room waiting to be filled by children, a system of linked rooms. Every so often these rooms empty out and new children flood in, he explained. Some of us work to keep the rooms clean, well-decorated and ready for the next contenders. The metaphor was problematic, of course, worrisome. A poet I otherwise do not understand once said that we are disloyal to both things when they say that one is like the other. It is a kind of treason against difference. I hid my concern. It was fine for him to cushion the air with idiocies. I would grant him that favor just as I might long for it now and then for myself. A time might come when it might be necessary for me to talk this way too. I'm not stupid. I can read feelings. He was winding up to shit-can me and why not just get it over with. On his desk were papers he kept gathering to his body. He puzzled over what he saw in them, but we know what that means. I would use a similar tactic if I had an animal in my office who needed to be torn to pieces. I'd have a few of the same little tricks, the artificial face of confusion, 
the artificial face of concern, postures of empathy and compassion. It comes down to atmosphere, Mr. Rubin said, the environment here and who is a good fit. It's tough for me to say this, but I also don't think you'll be surprised, Jay. I mean, it can't surprise you to hear this. Oh, surprise. I looked into my past for the most recent example of real, genuine surprise. I used a fucking telescope and scanned that deep black hole back to my birth and maybe even before. Where was the surprise? I looked and looked, but the field was bare. It's a problem of fit, and I'm afraid I'm going to have to let you go. He blinked at me. I pictured us far above the earth hanging from an aircraft, me holding onto his hand as he pulled his fingers away. He would let me go and I would fall and the feeling would not be unpleasant. The central problem was this, he went on to say, the feelings I cause in others. What people feel when they see me and hear me, what they feel even when they think of me. It was a situation the school could no longer abide. You have to wonder, when death is solved one day, all of us will be viewed as mules, brutish, dumb, not really human, because we let ourselves get old, grow infirm, die, because we let ourselves feel pain. We experienced pain with a certain resignation and acceptance. Maybe we thought we deserved it. There was even a value system, a kind of morality around who could hide their pain the best. You were a superior person if you hid it better. You were praised and celebrated when you pretended you were not in agony. Fucking mules. At home, I did some math regarding my finances. I'd have my salary for two more months. I had savings for another three. My pension, such as it was, would pay for a bag of apples every few months for one small child. How much longer would we all live, me and Jin and the kids? It was hard to say. A person had trouble coming up with an airtight plan or even a diluted plan when basic data of this sort was so hard to uncover. You could fuss with these little life expectancy calculators on the internet, but they didn't always kick out real numbers when it came to kids. Little kids especially, cute or not, healthy or not, creeps or sweethearts. Sometimes the sites shut you out if you punched in, say, a very low number in the menu bar for age, as if you wanted to know something illicit. Life expectancy of a nine-year-old. I mean, why not just say? There's math behind everything. It's not a death threat to wonder how long a creature will live. Who has time for shyness? The upshot was, of course, not enough money. Nowhere close. Maybe that was always the upshot. Maybe that's the definition of upshot. I loaded up the job lists and clicked into the sweetheart of them. I needed to work alone in a lonely place where no one would walk or stand. I needed a job inside myself, a way to get paid for sitting in a dark room, money for steering clear of others. I could clean things and fix things and I could talk to people who didn't talk back. I had a made up language with words that mostly sounded like breath gone wrong the last breaths of an old man, and I could recite that for someone if they paid me. I could use my body against the world where things were wrong and needed to be changed, digging and hauling and lifting and pushing. I could climb and I could descend and I could travel on the horizontal unless someone was hunting me. I could make shapes where there were none and maybe they'd be called houses. I could speak to children if anyone would allow it. 
I could not sing and I could not cook for a crowd and I could not laugh on command. I did not, so far as I knew, have a bad back. I knew something about the invisible world, the worms we call molecules, but all of that could change. Facts could grow up. And then I'd just be a storyteller lying about what goes on around us, hoping people believe that untruth reveals a kind of beauty and not just because it's a medicine against what is real. Maybe it was once true and maybe it will be true again. Jin came home and we drank a great deal because that was the dance style in those days. That was how we fought the night. We roasted the shit out of a chicken and cracked into it like it was a great mythological beast. There was a wine and we put our faces in it, forgetting to breathe. Jin went to the icebox where she found a frozen old log of something she'd made, bearded in freezer burn, and with my help we sawed into it, making thick yellow discs. Jin kept saying I should trust her, and when these toasted beauties came out of the oven after ages and ages, they were soft and hot and sweet, and if they burned my mouth, they also made me cry with pleasure. We attacked a platter of them and left none for the kids. Screw the kids, we were yelling, smashing our glasses against the wall. The night wasn't going to go on forever because no one had figured that out yet. Everyone in the world wished for such a thing, begged for it all the time, but it was as if each of us thought that someone else would do the hard work to bring it about. An endless night now and then, an option invoked even at extreme personal cost for no mourning. I wanted to sit with Jin forever and die in our chairs, me dying before she did, but just by a second, me and then her, and then I would have to think a bit about the list from there, who would die and when. There was so much more involved. They took my kids away, I told Jin. I hated to ruin her night, but she needed to know. What, what do you mean? They took them from me, I'm fired. It probably wasn't possible for Jin to get softer, but she did. You could have seen it on film and maybe then you'd see proof that she wasn't even really a person. What a small, dull word for what Jin was, how obscene. She softened and she almost transformed into a kind of medicine not just a creature, but a whole atmosphere designed to soothe and neutralize this sad, angry thing that had flown into its airspace. Jin had been tapped for a role and I could see her getting into character, Miss Sympathy. She might have had the decency to leave the room during this transformation. Of course, I might have had the decency not to exist in the first place. How rude to come on the scene like I did, how thoughtless. We knew this might happen, Jay, Jin said. She held my hands. You did, maybe. Oh, sweetie, I know. Oh, no, I'm sorry, I really am. Oh, it's not your fault, I deserve it. You don't. Well, you're being nice. You're being paid to say that. Jin got her wild and beautiful look. She grinned, and I almost couldn't bear to look at her. Ha, she said, not enough. Where's my money, if that's so? Why aren't I rich by now? What I did a few days later was to take a special $20 bill that I'd been given and that I'd saved forever, I don't know why. A mother might have given it to me long ago, I can't remember. I didn't earn it, I know that, it was a gift. A person handed it to me and I had never at that point seen so much money in my life. I just always kept it in my shaving kit and it had stayed crisp somehow. It was still new money and I probably thought that it had magic which embarrasses me to admit because mostly I can't stand that kind of talk. I put it in an envelope for gin and left it on her dresser. Once I used to collect gin bottles just for their labels and I'd steam them off and then scissor out her name. 
gin and gin and gin. I pasted one of these to the envelope so she'd know it was for her. I wanted to write a note and I thought a lot about what I might say. I wrote it all out in my mind, but there was no easy way to get it out of me. I didn't know how to extract it. It was all in there, in me, but I couldn't prove it. From me, I wrote, for you, because you are very nice. After Jin died, the children went to live with their aunt in Moroyo County, north of here, by not so long. This all sounds pretty vague, but trust me, it wasn't. It really happened, and it felt real, and there was nothing remotely vague about any of it. Jin's was the fast cancer, which I hate to say it is far cheaper, I mean dollar-wise, and possibly on the emotional side, though I'm no expert in that sort of tabulation. We used our money for her last days. She begged me not to. Once she even said that I was supposed to drive her out into a field and leave her there. It was one of our favorite places, not that I rank things like that. Nice places, fun places, places I like. We used to go there before the kids, and then with the kids, and then alone sometimes when the kids had their own life. Maybe the kids will go there one day without me. Maybe there will be days when no one goes there, when no one is left. One day it won't even be a field. Lava will flow slowly over it. Jin wanted only a blanket and a thermos of soup, and then I was to drive off. It was a favor she begged me to grant, a favor. It really didn't sound like one. We were making pots and pots of healing soup in those days with the sort of herbs and roots that cost much more because we knew so little that we were willing to believe a leaf or a root or a seed would make this all go away. We drove out to the field and I got her set up on the blanket and poured her out a bowl of soup. The day was fair and we didn't think she'd be too cold. How many nights would she last? It was something we didn't want to discuss. I asked, I asked her, was there anything else? And she just put her head on me. It was small and cold. When I held it, it didn't feel like I was holding her. That had happened. Her body didn't feel like it was hers. She was somewhere else. I held what she had anyway, the old finished body. She still showed the world. I touched it and tried to keep it from spilling out onto the ground. Jin said she didn't want her pills or anything. One of the medicines was a cream for her head. She also had a tincture and a dropper bottle, which she needed to squeeze into her mouth in the mornings that ate flesh, the kind that didn't belong to her, that had invaded her body and grown in her, but that was never hers. She was going to have a little bit of time without it all. It made her feel pretty crummy, she laughed, all of that healing. Something about being awake and alive again, something about not going into a terrible fog. We talked a little of the kids. They knew she was sick, but they didn't know anything, just like me. Jin asked for things, and I agreed. She said things, and I nodded. I made assurances I could not keep. She predicted that. She knew it. It was like she was talking to me from the future, telling it all to me, except here I am in the future, and I don't see her anywhere. I stood up after a while to say goodbye. You have been a good wife, I told her. I'm sure I did not deserve you, and I'm sure you do not deserve this. We hugged without tears, and I went back to the car, but on the way I ducked off the path and threw myself into the grass. It was there that I waited and watched her. She sipped her soup and stared off at the trees on the far side of the field. She had the blanket pulled over her and she was so small beneath it, it looked like no one else was there, like I had just left an empty campground. We both knew this wasn't really happening. We must have. 
some things, just a very few things, don't have to be real if you don't want them to. When she suddenly stirred and looked around, for me, I thought, I hoped. When she struggled to try to stand, I ran to her and picked her up and took her home, and that was the end of that kind of talk. The last of our money was spent on the hole we put her in, a coffin and some flowers and some food for the few people who came by. The children went up north and I was told and I was told to come see them and I was told to hug them and I was told to talk to them. I did those things and did those things and did those things. They had a good aunt, a fair aunt, and if the uncle was neither, he was so far away that it might not matter. The idea was I needed to find work and get us some money or nothing and nothing and nothing. Would someone explain that to them, I wondered? When I saw them, they crowded into me, warm and wet, and we walked around as one body. We tilted and we swayed, we lurched from room to room, and sometimes we fell. We'd need to figure out how to go faster, I told them, with them hanging on, onto my neck. We had to be smooth and quick in case something happened and we had to run. That was what a family was now, just this one body that had a lot of parts and several heads, and it had children's voices and a man's voice, and it was a force to be reckoned with. So until we learned how to do that, until we could glide through the world as fast as a cat, them hanging from me and me carrying them along, we'd have to be apart just for a little while. You can't give up what you never started, said someone from my past, a mother, a father, a friend, such a long time ago. I remember only the vague outline of their body and the horrible glow from their mouth when they spoke. I did little jobs, big jobs, no jobs. Coins came in and I smashed them into bread, into meat. I made a deal with County Electric and they put me on a schedule of darkness which killed the lights for days in exchange for no charges. And they leaked me power when they could spare it. A trickle on a Saturday, that sort of thing. The house would suddenly hum, shuddering back on and I'd see something wild and terrible in the mirror. Enough light to blind a small animal, I'd think. I'm sure I wasn't the first person to think about bottling it. But what I had was more than enough. I would have been fine with less. I called the children when I could and I told them, soon. Sometimes when they couldn't come to the phone, their aunt held the receiver into whatever space they were in, or so I pictured, and I shouted it, hoping they could hear me. Soon. Despite how it sounded, it wasn't a bird call. It was a call of a man, their father. It was just how he sounded when he needed to reach them. Whenever their aunt said they couldn't come to the phone, which was more and more, I pictured them trapped on the floor, someone sitting on them, or blanket after blanket after blanket covering and smothering them, or they were in a hole and there was no ladder, or they were in the water, the wrong kind of water, the black and thick kind, where if you try to swim, you slip down lower, you sink, and the more you try to swim, which is what I taught them always to do, no matter the kind of water, the lower you got until you were standing on the dark sand floor of the darkest, blackest ocean. Of course they could not come to the phone. Of course they needed to hold hands and push off the ocean floor first. They needed to swim to the surface like I taught them. Soon after that, I went looking for work and I fucking found it. An unbearable amount of work everywhere I searched because everything was broken, torn, crushed. There were faults in the soil, the buildings, the air. The people, especially, needed work, their moods, their appearances, the way they walked. 
But of course, so did the streets and roads. So did the trees. Disarray everywhere. Flaws of design. Error, human and otherwise. A shattered state of things. Would I be paid if I fixed some of these things? Made them right? Not for me to say. I knew. I would have to learn to ignore all of this unfinished work or it would disturb me. So much wrong. So much left undone. We shirk our duties when we open our doors, when we leave our homes. We shirk and shirk. We walk down the street and we ignore jobs swirling around us needing to be completed. We pretend we don't see. The job I finally took required so little of me that I wasn't sure if I was even doing it. It was like getting paid for not dying. I stood and I sat and I walked. I had memories and I had the opposite when nothing came to me and I listened to music come from the wall. Just a piano that sounded like it had been tipped over and kicked to pieces. The days were driven fast by an engine I could not see. When cars approached, I pressed a button for the bridge and when they were long gone, I pressed that button again. My money began to form a pile and the pile began to glow. It was October and the roads were already snowy when I finally went to get the kids. The aunt wasn't even there. The kids were packed and clean and all dressed up and they stood apart from me because we hadn't, we hadn't been practicing our single body power walk through the terrible, terrible world. The team had been on hiatus and now we were back together, I told them. I knew that I looked strange and scary and smelled like someone from the past. I hugged them anyway and whispered a few of the things I'd been saving up to say. In my pocket was the envelope I had given Jin. We took that $20 and we went out to breakfast. We got eggs and cakes and there was a sweet pudding served in a long bowl that the three of us shared as if we were the fanciest horses at the most golden of troughs. We dove our spoons into it and we laughed at how good it was. I had a real coffee and I accidentally cried, which no one saw. That was her money I was spending. It would be gone after today. Would she have wanted us to, as I kept trying to tell myself? I'm afraid the answer was no, and no, and no, because she didn't want anything. She wasn't anything. She had no name and no body, and her heart did not beat, and I didn't even know how to remember her right. I took a sort of girlfriend before too long, and I don't use that expression lightly. I actually took her from another man who was asleep at the wheel, just so out of it as if he were operating his own body with a broken remote control. You could peel off his face and throw it into the woods. I was 48 years old. For some reason, I was not dead, even though the late autumn season had that smell of failure of the afterlife. She had a name, and out of respect for Jin, I won't mention it here. The children met her and called her sister, and she never got too close or too far. When it came time to test our parts, I found she fit on me, but we all knew where that could go. She hollered at night out of nowhere, and sometimes it put me in a terrible crouch. She had her own job, her own life, her own children, and even somewhere else, a city, a town, a cave, I didn't know, an old abandoned husband who didn't know where she was. I thought of him sometimes. The deal was that she would always call ahead, and what that sometimes meant was that I'd hear my name, and not just my name, but the names of the kids sounding loud and pretty and strong way down the street. You may not know what it's like to hear your name sung out loud from far away by someone who has beauty in her throat. Bow your head and imagine it. Sometimes in the morning we'd hear it and we'd go outside and wait in the yard, 
when she got up to us out of breath and laughing, she'd always say, I called ahead. Did you hear me? The children are home. They keep their own secrets. I no longer curate their minds. No one has time. No one has the energy. Isn't that the world now? Listless, cowering in our homes, beset by paralyzing indifference, too tired to eat and waiting for a hammer to the head. Witness the birds, their, their exhaustion, please. Look at them closely for a change and ignore the ruse of beauty. Who can finally be bothered to still pretend we're not moments away from some blistering cremation? Not that I have specific information, I don't. I have no gift for the future. You've driven by houses like ours and maybe you've wondered just how the surrender happened inside. Did the body rot from the head down as legend would have it? Who gave up and how? A question that is always relevant. Take a picture of a family, of any family, and that is always the caption. Before her diagnosis, possibly even the very morning we learned of her cancer, Jen was outside doing something to the old tree. She loved the tree, felt it needed to know that, loved it but feared it, fretted forever that it would topple over and crush us. Now the kids and I will sit under it. It leans and sways and it makes a tremendous sound sometimes. The sound of a house getting crushed, the sound of a train slowing down, the sound of the world hurtling through space, all of this noise booming inside this monstrous tree. We will look around at the other smaller trees, at the leafy bushes, at anything that might move in the wind, and all of it is just so still, as if someone is suffocating the world with a bag and not even a breath can escape. And yet the tree above us sways and sways, observing its own private wind, moving according to a logic we'll never understand. Sometimes I hope that Jin was right and that this tree is coming for us. Sometimes when the kids get antsy and want to go inside, I hold them close and ask them to wait. Just a little longer, I say, outside in the shade. Just wait with me under the tree here a little bit longer. Something amazing is coming. Thank you. Um, thanks for listening. I, I think that was about half the story, and I just tried to take out the scenes that were really chipper and light and uplifting, just just kind of steeped in joy. Um, I would love to take some questions if you have any. Maybe you don't. We could stand together awkwardly. Oh, it looks like we do. Um, so if you had this family picture with the caption under it, who gave up, what would that look like? I mean, like, can you riff on that a little bit? Well, it would be a picture of a family <laughs> with the caption, who gave up and how. I think, you know, it's, it's the narrator's worldview that f families provide all of this joy and happiness but also in some ways ultimately falter, even if it's just because people die. It seems like he's caught in, in my view, he's caught in a long view. And if you get caught in a long view, like we're gonna die soon, you're, you're just <laughs> kind of circumscribing your, your pleasure. So I guess I see it as just a symptom of his take on the world. Side of violence, and, um, and that just filters out 
way more interesting than Rachel Cusk. <laughs> I mean, no, uh, I, uh, I mean, I think it's equal. I think we're neck and neck, <laughs> me and Cusk. Um, you know, I don't see it as my view, though, right? Like, that's not my view of family. I, I don't think that would be the caption of my family. Um, but it'd be interesting to think of what it might be. You know, I, I think I'm trying to get into a character's perspective, and it turns out he's a bit of a, he's obviously a nihilist, he's cynical, but that to me wasn't interesting enough, right? It, it's too, I think, too easy just to kind of get dark and negative and just try to riff in that way. That's, that wasn't a story, so... I think it just, it mattered to me that he could feel tenderness and feel a lot, and that he wasn't, like maybe he's a misanthrope in a way, but, but he's also kind of a, a sentimentalist. Or, or that maybe was my, my hope. really hard and, and I often don't. In other words, I, I start these things and I might have a paragraph, a sentence, a page and that seem promising but never really go anywhere and, some, and I guess I have certain tricks to try to lift it off into something and like for instance I was drafting this story and it was annoying me and boring me which was worse and I, I have a lot of problem like making things happen even just completely inconsequential things so the firing scene most of which I didn't read was really really long and, and you know it was just embarrassing and no one saw it but me but every day I would have to look at this like 25 page thing where this guy's getting fired and there was no justification for it and I knew it was a terrible idea and that no one would want to read that and, and I would sort of still persist um, and so I find that if I kind of chisel things away and, and push things forward into space maybe or into time, it can force me to do some other things that start to lift the voice into something I like to hear. And so I think once he was able, like it seemed like if I could put certain beats of movement or action, like for instance, I, I really didn't know what to do with this story and so I just literally killed off the wife. And right after a very kind of tender scene. And I just, and I didn't feel like it was perverse the way that sounds, but it just, it felt like the kind of story that, that needed some cold water splashed on it in some way that would, would wake it up. And I didn't want it to be a long death scene, like it seemed beside the point. And so I think sometimes those little maneuvers of sudden action can can help me anyway. I don't know that it's some general technique. Because um, I think what I do more naturally is, is write a kind of a voiced character where very little happens and therefore there's no real reason to keep reading. So it's kind of like warmed over philosophy, which isn't fiction and doesn't have that pressure or momentum or suspense. So I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to bring those features into a voice that, that is interesting to me because to me, the voice on its own doesn't have any, any power. So I don't know if that answers that. I'm not gonna really tell you how I do it because it's just like it's my, my thing. Yes. 
Yeah, busted. <laughs> I have a weird relationship to character names, and it's almost like when I come up with them, I just kind of go like this and just <laughs> write them down and then like have to acclimate to them. It seems ludicrously artificial to name characters to me. I have a huge problem with it, and I've just learned to kind of try to care less. And so I, I really can't answer. Like, it, so it just was Jin, and then... You know, then I thought of uh, there's this endearing thing he could do where he could, you know, scrape gin labels off the bottle. And then I thought, well, a lot of gin labels are they're like painted onto the bottle. And I thought people might really be bothered by that. This is how I spend my time. <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 I don't consciously look to do what you're saying where like I'll have a name and then I'll try to build like some thematic resonance around it. In fact, I, I try not to do that, um, but it, it obviously can happen. You know, there's a lot I'm trying not to do that might happen anyway, but I, th I, wasn't, I wasn't wanting to kind of be overtly thematic there necessarily. Yeah. Hello, Ryan. You know, I don't even have to take a step back to see it. And it's sort of when I was working on stories for this book, I, I, I became a little dismayed that I was kind of overlapping a little more than I wanted to. There's a story called The Grow Light Blues where there's a character testing out a new way to eat through UV light. His, his employer is testing it on him and it ends up disfiguring him and making him miserable, although he has an amazing redemptive scene at the end. But, and then there's another story called um, The Trees of Sawtooth Park, which has a little bit of like corporate drug experimentation on hapless protagonist. And so I start getting into stuff like that and I, and I feel... I feel some limitations, right? Like I feel I'm seeing my, my like the, the boundaries around the way my imagination works and the way my, my stories come out. Um, and so it, it, it bothers me a little bit and there was a story I just didn't put in because it was just echoed some of the others too much. You know, there's different ways to think about it. A collection maybe is fine when it resonates like that. I also pretty much wrote this book in two years Whereas before, it's usually been like 38 years per book. <laughs> so like, it was bound to probably reflect some, some kind of concerns and obsessions I was living with. The real question is, can those get reset and can you get any new ideas? And um, yeah, and there's another story, Blueprints of St. Louis, where these architects use a, a drug at their memorial sites in order to assist the feelings of the visitors and I just keep thinking, okay, like that's that's just getting tired now. And yet part of me thinks, but it's really interesting. I'm really interested in, you know, just drugging people and seeing what happens. Like I just would like to do that. So yeah, you know, I think they're, they are, you know, I don't think it's, it's, it's one of those collections where the stories are really all that different from each other. But it, some of it's out of your control really. You know, if, 
I sometimes have the fantasy of just not being myself, reinventing myself, writing as someone else, um, you know, writing as the great Michael Chabon, or writing as someone not me, so I could have different language, different obsessions, different approaches to sentences, but you, you can't. And that's why I like to read and read and read. I really do believe that like reading is the thing that could knock you into that, a new way to write maybe, or something that feels new. Um, I don't know if that really answers that. <laughs> Hal, See, I know that I know all your names. <laughs> I got here early. Yeah. 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 Do you, I guess, a lot of do you labor away at those, or do you experience the world? I always wonder if, like, do you go out and, like, is it real or fake? I think when I when I write, I <clears throat> I like that. Like I guess what you're sort of talking about is defamiliarizing, right? Like trying to forget a little bit of what we know about the world in order to see if there's something new to feel or a different way to reveal it. And it's it's a kind of that's a very old maneuver. I don't know. Does it? Who who did that first? Who was the first defamiliarizer? <laughs> I feel like the Russians. were Yeah. Right, so it's it's just like it's a pretty rich territory to get into, um, and and I think I've liked naming since my first book and coming up with definitions and incorrect definitions. I like the authority of that language, but I would say no. Like I don't I don't have a particularly interesting mind when I'm walking around in the world. Like it's pretty pretty mundane, and you know I, it would be nice if I if I did see the world in in that way, but. You know, I think partly the urge to write is a way to either remember or kind of claw into some of the amazing things we've, we, you know, we've long ago, you know, started taking for granted. Um, but no, my, you know, my day-to-day -day life is, is sort of free of that. But I guess I, I just, I have the urge to try to do it. And I don't even think it's especially a talent. It's just trying to f find some innocent seeming vector into something. Um, yeah. Yes. It sort of grabs on that. Um, one of the things I love about your work is how you hold certain details. Yet the story about your mother and going with ruminative digressions that are just hilarious. Thank your, you. You know their darkness. Um, and also in the stories that you chose for the women that are depicted uh, Yeah. Thanks. Um, You mean like like omission stories that leave stuff out? And, and, you know, uh, love your New York fiction podcast, the stories you choose, and how you discuss those, including for the digital acquisition world. Oh, Village After Dark. That's, that story can be reread fifty-seven times. Yeah. I mean, it is it is really astoundingly good. And then the guy puts out a collection of stories, and it's not even in there, which means he's just like, nah, it's just like a little. 
finger exercise for me. <laughs> uh, Like I don't really want to be doing it. I wish I could say so. I, I think when I was in college, I... I was reading a lot of the writers, well, of the time it would have been Ann Beattie, Richard Ford, maybe Mary Gates Gill, um, and really, really loving all of that work and trying very, very badly to kind of write stories. I, I loved reading short stories. I, mean, I was also reading, you know, Chekhov and Flannery O'Connor and older people, but, but that contemporary stuff really interested me. It felt, it felt very, very new and very powerful, but I, I, I really was not, not good at it. Not, I, I wasn't even promising at it. You know what I mean? And, and to the point where it, it's just what I was doing felt false to me. And I remember then reading Donald Barthelme, uh, who is just an astonishing story writer and was the first, I guess, really contemporary writer whose imagination just felt really, really liberating. So I can really say that when I read him, I felt like a lot of doors got opened. That's a great feeling to have, but it doesn't necessarily mean you suddenly can write. It means you know you've, you feel this excitement at what someone's done. And so I think that was my introduction to, let's say, the uncanny and the comic and the, the sort of unsettling material, but rendered in a really contemporary vernacular. And that did sort of set me off. But it's funny because around the same time I was reading the writers who were like part of the Nouveau Roman, the French new novel, and they're really <laughs> the opposite, like dry, humorless. Like a, the, 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 the main writer was Alain Robbe-Grier, and he would write like 30-page descriptions of a piece of rope, you know, which I found really thrilling. And I can't even account for it now, and I can't read it now either. I mean, I still feel this great fondness for it, but I'm completely puzzled by why. Like, I thought it was, like, exciting. <laughs> Not just, like, cerebrally interesting, but, like, real. I got really pumped about it. And so it was, a, it was a mixture of things, and I think I just was, I was attracted to the, like, the dryness and the cerebrality, and I, I definitely got really caught up in, in a lot of that and wanting, to, wanting something around that, but not knowing what and I was still reading what might be called more let's say conventionally realist fiction and, and really loving it never not but feeling like I maybe like a lot of young people just like I kind of had to figure out something that was a little bit more my own which is an illusion it's not anything anyone ever does but so I don't know I, I think I could go back through my whole progression and come up with those moments but um I don't know. I don't have a good a, a good answer for like a single moment. I think honestly, it's it's just like a lot of work, and I think too, it's reading what you've done and not feeling satisfied 
feeling like, oh, why didn't that get at this excitement I had? What's wrong with it? And then trying again and, and reading and trying again. And, um, and honestly, I feel like I, I'm still in that situation. Um, you know, I don't think I finish something and think now I know how to do this. And that, that's hard. That was depressing, sorry. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, so there's a, I left it out, <laughs> sorry. There is a part of the story uh, where there's, there's some odd things that may or may not be going on in the atmosphere that he's observing and I, I, I don't really know, you know. Uh, I think I, I sometimes do that just to see if I can build on the feeling or the mood or the, the unsettled anxiety in the story, right? Like it's, I think I like stories where it's more or less the real world, but if you look at it carefully, nothing is firmly telling you that. Um, there's a writer I really love who does that. Uh, his name is Saeed Sarafizadeh. He wrote a book of stories called Brief Encounters with the Enemy. And they look kind of like straightforward realist stories, but there's something a little off about them. There's some, like, there's no place names or anything, but domestically, the sorts of things everyone's doing seems, they seem familiar, but you realize actually that some of the rules you think might apply to a society aren't quite in place. And I think that that, that passage you cite might be my effort maybe to build some unease and, and yeah, kind of like enhance, enhance the mood. He's sort of estranged a little bit, but also engaged. He's looking out at the world, trying to understand it. Um, yeah, he's driving home from work after he gets fired and there are a bunch of cats who are asleep on the side of the road. I don't know. You know, I think you could argue that it's a little gimmicky in a way too. And sometimes depending on the short story editor I work with, some of that stuff gets cut right away. And I sometimes think, yeah, you know, that's a good edit. And other times I think, well, maybe I want to try to, um, you know, incorporate it. Should we? One more question? What? There's one more. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's been a long time. I, I really liked it. Yeah. Is there new work? Is he dead? He's still dead. You never know now. You don't know. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. I hope so, you know. He is someone you read and you, you want that influence because I, I, like, I just like that you can't really connect him to any other writer. He just seems like he's operating in a completely invented space and that's super cool, yeah. It's been a while, I'd like to go back to it. I've done so much to my brain since then that it's barely there. Sad, a lot of, yeah. Well, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.